The kids official sliding on the instrumental Nordic combos twist your mental like forbidden Peace to the public and power to the people Gratitude is the word for today I hope each of y'all think about your village, your peoples, your homies as we enter this space where the vulnerable are powerful and where the most gangster thing you can do is serve. This is All The Way Live. This is indeed All The Way Live with your boy Zwei Gila coming in with Miles Xavier. This is a space of curated conversation, you know? Uh, a podcast is where people grab mics and just talk. This is a whole lot more than that, man. Brother Miles is a community organizer and activist in his own right. I myself too pride myself on being a man and a servant of the people and what we do every single week on this show where impact and art meet at the center of information is provide carefully curated content for Ukrainian man and we do that every single week and we do it for one purpose more than anything else. Obviously, we do it because, you know, want to give you all some stuff that you can some some smart things that you can repeat around your friends and keep you up to date on news, information and art. But more importantly than that, man, we do this to be able to cultivate a space of intentional, positive energy. And that's because we know, man, that depression levels are higher than they ever been. Suicide rates are through the roof. People are feeling more lonely than ever, you know? And so we bring this space over here, man, some energy, positive energy that you guys can come into, take from, go about your week. And we do it consistently on a weekly basis. This week ain't no different. Not at all, not at all. And thank you, sir. I'm feeding off that energy. Feels good to be here in tune with all of y'all. Exit is in the building in a big way by way of Johannesburg being my brother. Appreciate you, sir. And I sign on the boards, got to acknowledge my man. The other thing we always got to acknowledge is that Chicago is in the building. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. This land was cared for by the Potawatomi people, the Council of the Three Fires, and the violence done to remove them from this land is inseparable from the violence that we see in the city today, this country today, and this world today. And as we look to make this world better, we need to look to that history for solutions and to inform us the way that we move forward. So that's how we move forward with the show. That's how you know that the intro's over. Let's get into it. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that. But is we live, though? Is we, like, all the way live, though? You heard? Like we say on this show, and I believe our producer is asking you, Miles, to turn your volume up just a little bit. But as we say on this show, man, this is the place where impact meets Art, emphasis on the impact part. Uh, we serve our communities and um, we like to be able to uh, highlight the people that are doing the same thing. This week is pretty interesting. Last week we spoke about Free Britney Griner and we got into the story of how she's incarcerated, wrongfully incarcerated in, in Russia as part of a political ploy. At the time of doing that show, what we skipped over was that there is another American prisoner that's being held in Russia. Come to find, it is Mark Fogel, who is my favorite high school teacher, man. It, it, it blew my mind, you know. It, it was crazy to be able to get those messages. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not sure what spurred 
this I'm not sure what spurred this this huge influx of support that's coming in now that I'm happy is happening. Um, but it just there was a flooding of information. People like, yo, do you know that the other person that they're talking about is Mark Fogel? Bro, it's my favorite history teacher. So we want to be able to utilize this time right now to be uh, to highlight the fact that Mark Fogel is the other prisoner that's being held in Russia and, and one of one of a few others um, being incarcerated. They're, they're handing him, he's starting to serve part of a 14-year sentence. Um, he's been there since August of last year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm close with this family, man. This, this is a, this, this is a, a great, great human being who was my favorite history teacher. So to hear that he's incarcerated in Russia at the moment, definitely broke my heart and broke a lot of people that are close, broke the hearts of a lot of people that are close to me. So to the Fogel family, I did want to be able to extend my personal, personal, um, empathy towards this. We'll, we'll do everything that we can on our show to highlight the fact that you know this man is this man is incarcerated in what is a difficult situation, man. No doubt, no doubt. Um, I just want to make space for your feelings and your connection to this one, um, and also just like yeah, we we support educators, we support people that are you know actively trying to trying to make change, and so <clears throat> to hear that somebody that really influenced you. Uh, was caught up in this, really took this to another level for me. And if we're going to just take some time to to lift him up, um, I would love for you to share, if you can, some of the reasons why he was your favorite history teacher, you know? What, what I really dug about Mark, Mr. Fogel, who, who he was to me, our history teacher, is that there was so much space for... There was so much space for, for opinions. So I was part of the IB program. And IB, if you if you're familiar with the international schooling system, that's the International Baccalaureate, you know, which is considered one of the more difficult curriculums for high schoolers to to be able to go through. And so, understanding just the pressure that students face as they go through this IB program is quite there's a very strict regiment on how you're supposed to teach information and how you're supposed to learn. And this man broke the mold. He was the first teacher I heard swear in class. He was the first teacher who encouraged open, open conversation and really had a very interesting way of wanting students to connect their voice with what they were writing. Um, anybody that knows Mark Fogel knows that he taught us about TFAC. And TFAC is a topic, explanation, facts, analysis, and conclusion. This is, you know, this is how you write, this is how you explain uh, information as you write it out, you know. So personally, man, he, he was somebody that allowed us to lead with our opinions, reinforce that with, uh, reinforce that with the support on how to structure it in an academic manner, and was just honestly did not give a damn really about what the school had to say about things, even if they were controversial, and was very much in support of students being the fullest versions of themselves in the classroom. And it's one of those things where coming into these classrooms, I always was excited to be able to talk to this man, speaking with him afterwards. Uh, unbeknownst to me is this man was suffering from chronic pain, from uh, chronic back pain, from surgeries and whatnot for years and years and years. Um, and and while, while, while we at it, if I can just ask our producer to just pull up the Instagram page um, that highlights how we can help the brother, I think that'll be, that'll be quite, useful um he was dealing with chronic back pains right and so one thing that his son ethan fogel had posted recently is that 
in an effort not to take opioids and prescription drugs, he pursued natural remedies um, such as cannabis, which he used for that pain, despite the fact that, um, you know, despite the fact that it wasn't the most optimal way to relieve pain, you could definitely take pain pills for it, but he decided to go that way. Um, and that's what he was caught in Russia for, bringing in prescribed medical marijuana in order to be able to help him with that back pain, man. So it's, you know, to hear that now and to hear what he was going through, it actually reinforces how good of a man that is, that this man can be dealing with so much pain, but still come to class with so much positivity um, and allow us to be free as as kids, man. It's, um, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation. Yeah, I think that's that's really beautiful. And there's a whole conversation to be had about maybe why um, teachers like that, we often feel like they're going against the grain, right? Why we feel like maybe um, education and, and opportunities for real learning and, and building a connection between the teacher and the student, uh, why does it feel like that's often not within the framework of how at least our education systems uh, are set up. Um, I feel that way in my experience with public school, and you're saying you feel that way in your experience with like international school, even in this IB program. So that all that to say that really good teachers, really teachers that make that connection are, are gems and really important people. And speaking of important people, right, that brings me back to Brittany Griner and the connections between that case and this one, and maybe why we, were able to see her name, but not this person who's a high school teacher. In some ways, that's kind of perfect, right? It's like, as an example of, of who we do see and pay attention to, even while other things are going on. So I just wanted to get your take on that on that connection um, right quick. Yeah, and I think it's important to to realize, too, I, I did my high school in Venezuela, right, in Escuela, Escuela Campo Alegre, which is where Mark Fogel was teaching. And come to find, you know, my respect for him as, as Mr. Fogel is it spans the many different countries where he was uh, this international school teacher, um, which I think takes a, another set of skills to be able to, to teach in a room full of so many diverse cultures and still be able to have everybody be connected. Um, so one of the things that comes up is that with Brittany Griner, you know, we had this out. This... Bless you, my brother. I'm allergic to Russian oppression. Um, one of the things that, <laughs> um, so Brittany Griner, you know, we spoke about how the, the Biden administration is in negotiations on how to be able to do a prisoner swap of sorts, and they're keeping it quite hush-hush. However, what I read is that Mark Fogel was left out of that conversation. Um, even more crazy, I, I was listening to a podcast I think it was the Lex Friedman podcast where they were speaking about this other, this other prisoner who's being left out of these negotiations come to find it's Mark Fogel that they're talking about. And he has been left out of these negotiations and they're not getting word back that he's part of this prisoner swap that they're trying to orchestrate, which is quite, um, which is quite difficult for the family to be able to, to, to digest at the moment. So, you know, at this show over here, we highlight, uh, we highlight information, but we also come with solutions. So there's a bunch of things that we can do right now. There's a petition that's going out. Um, we've shared it and we'll continue to share that link onto our, on our platforms on how you can help. 
Um, there is state people that you can be able to write to, man. This is, you know, activists got to get active. People and loved ones uh, do follow those pages, sign those petitions, donate how you can. I've already done my donation. I've already done the petition stuff, man. Um, let's let's see if we can bring Mark Fogel home. A good dude. No doubt, no doubt. Um, and for me, this is this is an opportunity to get involved in all those ways. So thank you for shouting out those resources, and also a reminder to like be always stretch your empathy. Right. And there's so many levels to this. Right. How we were looking at Brittany Griner and going, what type of attention would she got? Would she get if she was a NBA star rather than a WNBA star? And it's just levels to this thing. So to me, it's like always even if you can't quite picture yourself in the situation or even if you don't think you would react the same or you never would have set yourself up like that. Always extend your empathy because there's always angles to this that we're not thinking about. And those angles often have real people that are having real experiences behind that. So just to exercise in empathy as well. Hey, man, listen, at the same time, if you do want to get active, Rob Mark Fogel will drop the links. At the, me and Miles Xavier, we run an NGO. We feed millions of meals that we hand out, literally handing out millions of meals. We've given out laptops. We're about to finalize that laptop drive coming in. Uh, soon so uh, if you do want to be able to get active with the all the way live boys and with our team go sh go check out our mandula foundation page and our socials see how you can get involved like we say there is no minimum requirement when it comes to impact every cent every action every repost does help man enough said <laughs> Nah, go ahead. <laughs> Yo, listen, man. Listen, what? how this show comes together is always so interesting, man. We, we have such a loaded show full of information, full of dope stuff to be able to talk to you guys about. Stumble upon this week, rejection therapy. Rejection therapy. Um, and we're explaining it for y'all, man. We're breaking it down for y'all. Miles Xavier, you seem all sorts of ready to dive into rejection therapy. What is rejection therapy? So it's actually, uh, I guess it could be called like a game, right? It's a, it's a real life game where you set yourself up to be rejected by another person at least once every single day, right? So that could be asking, making a strange request at a store. That could be asking for something from a friend or family member, maybe somebody that lives in your household that you know they probably ain't going to do, but you set yourself up to be rejected at least once a day. Uh, it's a concept created by Canadian entrepreneur Jason, Jason Comley, uh, and basically he had challenged people to approach strangers with weird requests to build their resilience against rejection. I'm not mad at it. I... <laughs> <laughs> I get it as a concept, uh, but I have I have questions. Uh, first of all, does it work? Are you truly facing rejection if you make rejection the goal? You know what I'm saying. So that that's a that's an interesting that's an interesting way to put it. If if you make rejection the goal, well, I'll tell I'll tell it to you like this, right? Um, 
Jason Comey very, very well came out of a difficult uh, divorcing situation. And I knew it when this topic <laughs> came across <laughs> our, our writing table. I, I, I had a feeling of where this all stems from. And I knew it has something related to him wanting to be able to overcome the rejection of speaking to women. The statistics that I couldn't find is the level of rejection that men feel specifically when talking to women. It's got to be through the roof. It's, it's, it's got to be through. Dare I say, that's a majority of the rejection that people fear. Romantic rejection is what you're saying. R- romantic, sure. Romantic, Miles. How about man? You're you're famously known to be super smooth with the women. You know. Um, tell us how <laughs> you've approached <laughs> overcoming rejection. No, I think anybody who ever was famously smooth with the women stopped being so, or like it cancels out as soon as somebody says it like that. Like it's a wrap. Uh, so thank you for ending <laughs> whatever smoothness I might have had, but. Uh, I think, okay, so I think there's a lot of layers here. I think, first of all, there's, I I think in, in Western culture, at least, men tend to face more rejection in a romantic sense because we've set up courtship, even in a modern sense, right, in a way that women will typically wait and respond to advances by men. Um, and increasingly, we're getting more specific about what is an acceptable advance by a man. Um, but I think that sets, and I, and I, you know, in my research, I, I discovered and found that evidence to support that yes, men face that romantic rejection more often than females do. Uh, so there's that layer to it. But I, I think this can apply to so many different things. Right. Uh, I had I was wondering where the romance angle would come into this conversation. And and I'm mad at it coming in very early. But I think specifically when we get to the the romance and the way that men pursue women, there's like this important thing I kept coming across in the research that like men get more used to hearing no. Right. But to me, that's deep. Right. To me, that's deep because it's like, are we hearing no and being desensitized to no vis-a-vis the lack of safety women feel in engaging with men that we're hearing from women. Are we, are we, and, and then it's like, it's this, it's a double, it's like, so sure men are more likely to hear no. And even in business spaces we know, or there's evidence to support that men are more likely to ask for a raise, right? And stuff like that. But there's like, there's also this unspoken set of rules that make women feel like they can't even ask even like in the dating relationship, like that they're set up to receive and then they get to decide, right? So I think it's important to just look at those structures when we, cause like, what does it mean to uh, to be rejected in advance? You know what I'm saying? From that romantic angle, from just the, set, from the setup that society is rejecting the idea of you being the person who asked. So what Miles is saying is ladies, look, Say yes, you know, go out. <laughs> nah, but on a, on a more on a more serious note, taking it a bit deep, what this rejection therapy leans on is the is some is some therapeutic practices known as exposure therapy, which is usually given to folks that have experienced that uh, have phobias or traumas, which is you expose yourself towards those elements and then um, increase your brain's capacity 
to being able to handle those things. So specifically, if you are afraid of heights, um, slowly slowly increasing the places where you face that fear and then confront it because a lot of fear is ingrained in um is, is ingrained in ignorance and is ingrained in a hyper a hyper imagination a lot of fear is ingrained in a hyper imagination um so is hate a lot of hate is ingrained in in hyper ignorance at the same time but what's particularly interesting that i found and this is something that um Eckhart Tolle speaks about something that you all know I spoke about too. If you get into the chemistry of the brain, is that from an anthropological perspective, we're getting anthropological on y'all. We're okay. getting anthropological on y'all. Okay. Come on, man. Come on. I swear down. I swear down. Um this is interesting, right? A MRI showed that your brain, the same area of your brain, that is reacted when you're in physical pain is also triggered when you're rejected. And so anthropologists tie this back to the fact that um, from, from thousands of years of back, when we say back in the day, we're talking way back in the day. Like, we're talking, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're talking the primitive places. If you were rejected by your group of people, you were ousted from the group, you could die. Mm-hmm. You had no protection, you had no coverage, and you had no b- ability to get food. And so over time, the brain has linked um, that has linked that pain of rejection to make sure that you avoid that situation so you can stay within the group. You know, the brain has a very simple, uh, a very simple way to be able to react to things. If it's very bad and can kill you, it makes it painful. If it's not very bad and can't kill you, then... You know, it'll slide through. But then how that shows itself now is that that same trigger point of rejection um, is still there. So you can literally feel physical pain when you get rejected. That's that's very interesting to me, right? Like, and, and I think that that, yeah, that gives context to what it means to be rejected. But I also think the idea of rejection therapy is to understand that we also face rejections in everyday sense, or at least a fear of rejection that might even keep us from asking things. And so in the ways in which we're not putting our lives at risk, right, no longer in a modern sense, right, in that same lack of like resources, like shelter survival sense, in everyday rejection, to expose yourself to it in small measures so that you build up a resistance to it and you get comfortable maybe taking up more space and especially for people that struggle to ask for help, right? I think there's a really when you struggle to ask for help when you when you have this deep rooted fear of being rejected sometimes it makes it really hard to communicate your needs right and and I think that for people that really struggle with that this might be a good thing to consider now on the flip side I have an issue with using your everyday interactions with people as a game, as like a challenge. You know what I'm saying? Because not not everybody has time for that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In their day. So I don't know. When you think about, because like, we, so we talked about Jason Comey earlier, right? But the the dude we actually have pulled up, uh, shout out to Hassan, is Jia Jang, who took this idea further and created like basically 100 challenges for himself to go out into the world and ask for things. Um, and so when you think about it from like the perspective of like, 
running up on strangers and not even running up, but you know what I mean? Like taking up that more space in that more public context. I'm, I'm interested to see what you think of that. So it's, it's funny how this comes about. Unbeknownst to me, I've been doing this hundred day rejection challenge for the last five years, you know, oh, shut um, the life of the life of an entrepreneur is that of constant, constant rejection. Yo, I cannot stress that enough. How constant we face rejection. Me and you recently just pitched for some cash to be able to help out some kids. What did they say to us, Miles? No. They actually Me said, you. do you have any cash? <laughs> they asked us for cash. You It'd be like that lunch. sometimes. <laughs> you say too much. But here's, 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 another, here's another point, right? Me, with our first outing as a group, we put together, we spent so much time putting together this perfect pitch for this large company for an idea that we thought was super strong and could help a bunch of children, what was their response to us? Uh, the response was no. <laughs> it was no, you know, and 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 these things happen so often, man. And so one thing that I like to tell people when they when it comes to the when it comes to the conventional growth, right? I don't like the you, you know. The therapist says not to be afraid of the word success because it's all determined by how you define it. So what would be conventionally seen as the success that I've been able to have in this particular field, it is completely lined with rejection. And one thing that I tell people often is that you need to get a very comfortable relationship with failure. You need to get a comfortable relationship with rejection. We work in many groups together. I always say, this idea is not good enough until we start facing failures quickly. We need to fail quickly. I say, we need to fail quickly. We need to fail quickly. Good entrepreneurs know that you, you have to fail. It's, it's fail, fail fast, fail fast, grow quick, fail fast, grow quick. That is the, that is the algorithm of success. Fail fast, grow quickly. So when I, when I'm thinking about this, this rejection thing, you know, and how I've been able to interpret it in how I, how I do it, but there is no, there is no success without a very warm feeling with rejection. We, they said no to us. We jumped off that phone, laughed about it, learned from what, from that situation, and then pushed over to the next thing. That's because we've had that exposure. So in, in, in the context of, of what, in the context of the things that we do in our professional life, um, I think that is important. And a lot of people who are also applying for jobs right now, um, you know, I know a lot of our audience are, young people who are applying for jobs and are getting these rejection letters. And I'm, I speak to a lot of people who are just down, down, just be just, man, they say no, they say no. Hey, 98% of applications go, are, are no. 98% of applications are no. It's, it's not a personal thing, but like rejection and failure is the road. It's not part of the road. It is the road. Mm. Learn to love that shit. I think that's... I mean, that's really true, right? Especially in an entrepreneurial sense where you're putting yourself on front street for whatever opportunities you're going for. But I think in the ways that maybe that that has molded like you, I want, yeah, I, I, I want to look to you to think like, what, if, what about somebody who, or maybe was there a time when that was more difficult for you, right? Because now you, you know, you've been in these boardrooms and you don't care who else is in them. You know what I'm saying? You got the shirt open, hamburger meat, gold chains, letting them know that you, this, that this is your arena too, that you're comfortable in these spaces. You know what I'm saying? And 
that's that's beautiful. That's a wonderful thing. But I would I would love to hear about maybe some of the times when you were walking to that space and you, um, or even not, not even necessarily that space, but like where you had to face that fear of rejection. Matter of fact, what's what's your biggest rejection? All right, we talked about one that was in a business sense, and that's cool, right? We can still build from there. Actually, the best things oh. in business come from relationships, so we have the ability to to move on from that. But hit me with a rejection that like that really hurt you before you was good at dealing with it. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> Ow. The vulnerable are powerful I, in this space, man. Come on. Church. Church. <laughs> I, I mean, it's definitely relationship related, right? Okay. Relationship related. Something that I had to learn difficult way, as as a lot of young men who are trying to understand themselves learn, is I I was rejected by somebody who I loved, is what it was. Mm. Whoa, you went and there. I was rejected by somebody I love. You in these waters now, play a swim. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the funny thing I learned about that rejection is that is that um you can you uh, some some sometimes as men we we mourn the we mourn the ability to be able to, the option of having a woman. We mourn the option of having a woman. And mm. that was the rejection that I faced. I, you know, it was somebody that wasn't speaking to whatever. And I was like, hey, girl, I still love you. And she's like, nah. And she left. Um, and it was the, the loss of that option that was just so gut-wrenching. And it turned me into an animal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, it has. Thank you, Mr. The Animal. We appreciate your testimony. <laughs> Here on the All The Way Live <laughs> experience. What about what? you, Mr. Smooth? Uh, I mean, no kizzy. I really wanted to go to a school on the on the West Coast out there that shall not be named. That I really thought like that was the great look for me in terms of my high school transition. And um, the school told me no. Right? I was going to say the universe told me no. But I was keeping it a bean. The school was like, nah, player. And, you know, that like I was really... And in the moment, I saw myself only. I saw it only as a loss, right? I saw it only as like all the things I wouldn't be able to do out west. You know what I'm saying? The 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 weather, you know, the, just everything that's out there. And it was the one of the best things that's ever happened to me, right? It put me on this path now. To <laughs> it put me on this path not not to Drake about it, not to Drake about it, but it put me on this path now to um. To, to where I'm at, right? Chicago was where I needed to be. I didn't go far for school. I ended up going to UIUC. So to be back in the city was exactly where I needed to be. And and sometimes I think even in that relationship, there's there's part of that, the, the moral, if there is one of that story, is like sometimes you're not ready for the things that you want. Um, and so sometimes rejection is a indication that you need to work on yourself. You need to get to a place, not necessarily to go and achieve that thing, but you need to work on yourself more so that when you have the opportunity to have something that makes you as happy as that thing that you felt rejected by, you're able to to deal with having it or not having it in a way that's mature and, and then stable for you. Um, I think part of that, maybe not so much in the relationship aspect that you were just talking about um, or the uh, university aspect that I was just talking about because in those cases, it was us. We was the problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We didn't have the credentials in whatever case to carry forward from that point. But a lot of times, rejection is not about you. 
I think that's another key thing here. It's like, you, no matter, like, in across relationships or business or whatever, a lot of times there are other factors at play. Sometimes maybe it's that you're not being heard. Sometimes it's maybe that it's not the right time. Sometimes it's maybe that the connection that you're trying to make, it's just, it, it's not the right one and you can't see the reasons why. But a lot of times it's not about you. And I think a lot of us internalize and personalize, like Drake, the rejections that we feel. Uh, and sometimes that, that that is the part that's, that spills out um, in a way that's unhealthy. Because when we feel like we're not enough, when we feel like the rejection is a result of who we are as a person, it does prohibit us from doing additional things. And it also affects the way we treat people and see other people who are successful in whatever they're doing. Wow. That's very powerful, bro, because what you're speaking of now is a very heightened and enlightened way of seeing the world, right? When you are in tune with the universe and you believe that everything is not happening to you, but is happening for you, um, then there's no such thing as a rejection that is personalized. But then ingrained in each rejection is an opportunity of growth. It is, it is ingrained in it, like, you know, and that's, like you said, a, a, a chance to be able to learn even more. So a, a, cool, a cool way of being able to approach it that has helped me a lot is being very inquisitive about rejection and treating rejection as feedback um, and, and, and really wanting to, to understand it. One of the things that we did after this huge, and mind you, this deal that we're working on to get through the first, you know, the one we're working through, would have been massive for us. It, it would have been massive for us, right? It would have it would have really changed. It was big deal for us. Zero for the kids. Zeros. That's why I'm hurt, bro. Zeros on zeros on zeros, right? But um, how we approached is that we wanted to know, like, okay, what is it about what we're doing that can be better? How, how can we get better about it? And and separating ourselves and treating that as a chance of of learning how to get better in it. A fun fact, when you internalize rejection and you visualize it prior to an action, your IQ levels drop. So by personalizing rejection, your IQ actually drops, which is why a lot of people amidst rejection are prone to be able to act and make these terrible decisions. We know a lot of times when women reject men after walking, what do they say to them? A whole bunch of epithets, and slurs that follow right after, right? Not justifying it, but it's the reality that by 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 personalizing rejection, you lower your IQ levels. What you said was was extremely was extremely enlightened, man. And I hope that folks that are listening can really take that to heart and realize that, and and realize that just by altering how you view rejection, you can grow from it in an incredible way. Where I'm at with it, I love it. I love it. This it, it, I face it every bro. I cannot stress enough. I cannot stress enough how important a a healthy relationship with failure is to success. It it is fundamental to it. It's absolutely fun. Daily, 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 daily. It happens. You heard it here first, folks. Fail up. You got it. Um, but I appreciate you, brother. Gratitude. Uh, yeah, one thing that I came across, like, you know, just a catchy way to say it that stuck with me as I was looking for research through this topic was, like, we got to depersonalize no. I think that's cool, right? Um, and connecting it to some of the other things that we've talked about on this podcast, including, like, the curriculums uh, that we saw from Freedom and Balance last week. I think what's being created here is, like, one version of a curriculum to depersonalize no, right? Rejection therapy is a way to do that. 
I don't know about going on little shenanigans and adventures in your neighborhood. I live in the hood, so I wouldn't suggest that around here. You might get more rejection than you bargain for. But think about <laughs> little ways. <laughs> think about little ways to uh, expose yourself to that rejection in ways that can build you up. Um, opportunities that you know you might not have otherwise taken, but also not brace yourself, but secure yourself, ground yourself in the knowledge that you are enough and that if you do get rejected, it's not always about you. Rejection doesn't just happen on a personal level, man. It also happens in many different ways, such as part of our next topic. The UN is getting rejected right now by the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's get it. Yes, sir. All the way live where impact meets art, where information meets intention, where Miles and I dedicate ourselves, Miles and I and our producer. Um, it's a full team effort over here, man. Um, dedicate yes, ourselves sir. into understanding the latest in news, the latest things that are happening around the world to keep you guys informed. This week ain't no different. As of Last week, Monday, there has been a eruption of protests specifically um, aimed towards the UN and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, the last statistics that have came out is that there have been upwards of 15 deaths, a lot of them people that are working within the UN and also some of them of the protesters. Um, the people of uh, the people of of. DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, are, which is a which is a, a country in Africa that sits in Middle Africa, between um, just underneath Rwanda, um, speak of they fed up. They fed up with the UN. Um, they're saying that these protests are because the UN has been there for a long time and are failing to be able to protect them from the increasing violence that has been coming from. Um, that has been coming from the from 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 terrorists and the resurgence of of M, the M twenty three the M twenty three fights that have been happening. Um, if if you're unfamiliar with the history of the Democratic Republic of Congo and specifically with um, Rwanda and how they be, they act with each other, a more popular reference point would be Hotel Rwanda, um, where there was a genocide of four million people that happened over the span. Of six months, it's crazy. Wow. It's yeah. absolutely, it's absolutely crazy, man. Um, and so, this it, it was a it was a, a racial, uh, a culturally divided war between the Hutsis and the the the, the Hutus or the Tutsis. Sorry, uh, forgive me. Um, where it's um, it's tough to talk about. I mean, look, man. You know. This the the reason why this is so fascinating for us is because the UN is is seen as a peacekeeping effort, um, and if you've been to some like I've been to South Sudan, I've been to Rwanda, I've been to countries where the UN has a presence in those countries. From the airport you land, not Rwanda specifically, but now speaking South Sudan, you land in the airport. 
there's massive UN and World Health Organization uh, planes that are there. Um, you you go through there's the, the the UN flags are there. The UN cars are going are, are moving around, right? And you you find that a lot of times in countries after there's been a war, uh, the UN are the first movers to be able to go there and keep war. So what we wanted to do, man, is just inform you guys on the the role of the UN in some of these countries. Inform you guys on the situation that's happening in Congo, uh, in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, Miles, what? What did what did you think? What did you come across? Um, I'm interested to to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, thank you for giving such a, a thorough introduction on that, giving people the context. Um, that's solid. On my part, um, it's tough, right? Because I always hesitate to to compare anything that's happening um, somewhere outside the U.S to the context that I know of as far as organizing, right? As an organizer, I'm somebody who, yeah, touts, right? Power to the people. Um, and so I think there's a lot to get into here in, in terms of what it means to have a, a revolution and, and for what it means for the people to um, oust any form of power, right, within their, within their space. I look to the conversations we've had on Sri Lanka, right, where people gather together to, you know, oust the Rajapaksas, um, and I and I think of all the different ways in which unrest takes shape and the different ways that we label it depending on the lens that, that we look at the conflict through. So as I as I look at this, right, I think the UN if 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 is a foreign entity, right? Uh, and if the people that live there, if the if the majority of the people that live there um, want them out, then I think that that's what should happen. And I and I admire the the will of the people to gather together and to make that happen. Um, at the same time, I guess I don't have enough of the enough context to know whether this movement to oust the UN truly does represent the entire the the feeling of the majority of folks in, in DRC. Um, I would hope that it does. I would hope that you know. Uh, I hope I'm not doing my own form of imperialism by hoping that there was some type of, I mean, I, I don't imagine there was a structured democratic decision to do this. That's often not how movements happen, but that there was some democracy infused, right? That's where I would start to have an issue with it. Um, I wish I knew more about the specific things that the UN, that, that caused people to be upset by the UN before the conflict really kicked off. Um, but yeah, I think I'm just trying to process this as I try and process all um, kind of international events as feeling for the people that were lost, first and foremost, um, feeling for the people for whom this will continue to mean instability in terms of accessing food and water and shelter and health care. Uh, and, you know, for all the violence that that accompanies this, right, that isn't directly related to the conflict. So. I feel for folks when I see this, and I hope that there is some structure to bring or order and organizing to um, this space. Now, I want to, in whatever way the people see fit, underscore, underline the people. Um, but now I want to kick it back to you and be like, as we look at this, as we look at Sri Lanka, and then we look at things, and I know the answer to this question. I have a very vehement, vehement answer to this question, but I want to kick it to my brother to be like, when we look at other acts of violence perpetrated by people who are upset with their government, stuff like January 6th, right? Um, how do we make sense of all these different 
approaches to changing things outside of the established system? Um, and how do we know which ones to support and which ones to be wary of? I think it's very, I, I like the fact that you've, I like the fact that you've highlighted some of the other instances where we've seen people take arms to be able to remove some form of, of power. And undoubtedly, the UN's presence in DRC is a form of power, especially when you consider that's a military, um, there, there is a, a military element to it. Um, it, it however, I, it, is, it is different. It, it is very different from what the Rajapaksas were doing, and it is different from the, the January 6th uh, movements. Namely, the population of, pe of people that we're speaking about in this particular instance is hundreds of people in the country where there's nearly 100 million people in the country. Um, what, the, what they're saying is that the UN has been there for 20 years, right? So the, this MONUSCO, which, uh, MONUSCO, which is the Organizational Stabilization Mission in DRC, um, mm -hmm. followed in 1999, was established in 1999 after the civil war that was happening within the DRC. And the, the UN, which is an intergovernmental organization, what they do is that they say... Bless you. One Thank more you. game. So, Are you good? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to... Uh, I'm allergic to civil wars. Um, <laughs> but never this episode. Zwen's allergic. Yeah. Zwen's allergic to too many things. Word. So how the UN came about is that after World War II, they were like, okay, listen, guys, war is bad, okay? So mm -hmm. let us all contribute military personnel and let us all... Let's, there's, a, there's a donation plate going around for peace. <laughs> so everybody put what you got in this pot. And from there, what they'll do is that they're not a military that will fight for freedom. They're a military that gets enacted so it can maintain freedom. Um, and in this particular instance, in 1999, it was the same thing with the development of MONUSCO, where they said they are there to observe and ensure that the freedom charter and the freedom, um, the freedom clauses that are put there are maintained over there. Now, over this twenty-year period, there has been uh, there has been some there has been some controversy that has come about, uh, specifically in two thousand and seventeen, where they were saying ten of the ten of the UN the UN personnel were abusing and raping women. The largest contributor of the eighteen thousand troops that are in DRC is India. That's important. Mm -hmm. When you understand and contextualize the relationships that Indians have with Africans from Kenya, South Africa, uh, over here as well, Rwanda, there is a, the, the second highest populations of Indians outside of India is in Africa, yeah. namely South Africa. True. So there is, there, there is, tension in, in some areas, right? And so that that definitely contributes a bit to this. But what they're saying is that you guys get $1 billion a year, have 18,000 troops in here, been here for 20 years, and the people you're supposed to protect us from, you can't even do that. So what is the point of you being here? And that's that's what I think makes 
this whole situation so different from January 6th and from the, the, what we're seeing in Sri Lanka at the moment. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, and that's, yeah, that is kind of the core of what I wanted to get at, right? Like what are the reasons, what are, and who is, who are they mobilizing around? Um, I hope I was humble enough in my lack of knowledge in terms of the context. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a very particular case where it's the UN and not the government being attacked, right? Um, I think in the case of January 6th, the point that I would also just add is that when you have one political figure intentionally riling up a group with disinformation, that's one way to kind of identify, well, this is a very different type of movement that we need to be conscious of, right? Versus people exercising the will of the people against government or any other occupying force. Um, like you said, this this is a small group of people versus uh, an entire nation of people. And I, when I think of all, of all of those people and what this means in terms of stability in the, in the nation, I would just hope that anything that happens in this vacuum, because there is always a vacuum of power, right, whenever someone gets pushed out um, and the UN is continuing to evacuate from DRC, that whatever resources that that frees up are allocated to the people who need them most and not just the people that are there in the moment um, when those resources become available. So shout out to the folks organizing in DRC to make sure that, yeah, that there, there can be solutions moving forward um, if they don't feel like the UN is providing those solutions. And shout out to y'all for rocking with us. You know, we, we see what's going on in the world and we're trying to make sense of it in real time. Uh, and this is one of those that we felt we should just cover in terms of what's going on in the world. Um, people are having all different types of world experiences. Um, governments are changing, the world is changing. Uh, so pay attention, and if you have questions, put them in the comments. If you have corrections, put them in the, put them comments. In the comments. Uh, cause you know we really want to get engagement up on these sections of the show where we're really trying to dive into this research. You know, we're really trying to we, we try to spark these conversations on a deep level. Um, and so the more that y'all can engage and get involved, that's fire. Where y'all already engaged and involved mm-hmm. is where we going. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, we spend all this time. We we say it every week. Here we are. We just broke down what's happening in 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 uh, the DRC. We're looking at uh enlightened thinking uh, when it comes to exposure therapy. Miles, we spend hours and hours putting this show together. They yeah. come <laughs> they, they, <laughs> okay. They like it. They like it. They like it. It's wrong to say that they don't care. They True. do like it, but undoubtedly, yeah, they like one section of the show far more than any other section. <laughs> Let's get to them there. I'm cool. This one don't need no introduction. This the queen. This B. Fiance in the building. Renaissance. Y'all know what it is. Like it. I'll get kicked off Twitter. <laughs> and for that reason, five out of five. Next. <laughs> Next. No cap. Yo, so I'm off mad mic. at myself. You're mad at you. Tell me about this. 
why did I feel the pressure to prepare for this particular review more than any other review? We've we covered so many reviews. This these are the most notes I've taken on any album review. Yeah, hilarious that hilarious that dudes are more scared of Beyonce fans than I swear Bezel fans. <laughs> <laughs> like dang, you are less you are less safe uh, if you don't like the artist. For show, for show, in a Beyonce concert than you are listening to ESTG or any of those boys that we've been reviewing lately. But this is a nice change of pace. Uh, you told me off mic that you were struggling to find a place to to hear this, to put this on, right? Uh, tell me about that struggle. How did that go for you? And then when you got it together, how did it sound to you? Hey, yo, I, I, I damn near almost caught an aneurysm trying to figure out where's the right place to be able to play this show, <laughs> to play this music. I'm, all, I'm walking to the gym. I'm about to lift heavy weights. I was like, do I? No, no, no. That's not the right time for that. That's not the right time. But then, you know, getting into other engagements on my way to on my way to a function. I was like, do I? Eh, no, 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 that's not the way. Hanging with the homies, going to a hip-hop show. I go, do I? Eh, that's not the way. That's not the right time. Um, which is which is interesting. I but I it did dawn on me mm-hmm. when Beyonce music is most played around me and when I enjoy it most. You know that particular moment before you go out in the night and you 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 give your girl the ox. You say we go play, go. You give your girl the ox, and she's putting on her makeup and she's getting ready and she dancing in the mirror and she's getting all 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 together. This, this you know that makeup music is what I like to call it. Uh, I, I feel you. I'm, I'm with usually, you. Usually, usually Chris Brown is on that playlist. A hundred percent. There's gonna be some Chris Brown playing. Controversial. Women love Chris Brown, bro. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, her, there's gonna be her that's playing. Her for sure. might be playing. Big Towns, um, Big Burner Boy, Burner Boy. Um, Beyonce fits fits right into that. So interestingly, I, that's the context under which I I I envisioned myself. You know, you you're not paying attention. You you might be on your phone or you might be playing video games. You just waiting for baby girl to get ready, getting dressed. And you just let, let that music play. You don't hate it. And, you know, you don't hate it at all. But that's, if it's a bop, oh, it's Beyonce. Oh, baby, it's Beyonce. Oh, it's Beyonce. It's a bop, you know? Like that. Is that I'm how, a single dude. Is that how you've always felt about Beyonce's music? Because Beyonce's had very several very different stages. Like, there was the, like, 90s R&B Beyonce. Then there was, like, the early 2000s, like, hip-hop Beyonce. Then there was, like, the real, like, songstress, like, oh, no, nah, we sing Beyonce. And then you kind of got like the social justice, like Beyonce, right? And so I, I just you felt that way about all the variations. That's a great question, bro. N- not really, actually, not really. And I'm not sure particularly why this. Maybe it's because the lead song sounded so dancey to me. It sounded like that Drake album, which I still haven't really gotten around to listen to. I, I flipped through it, and I was like, oh, I need the right context for this. And so the lead song was very much under that same tone. And knowing that Drake was a co-writer on that too, and it had that dancey feel, the the alignments of it, the everything is love. Funny enough, the Jay Z Beyonce album, I, I dug that. But Jay Z's on there. I'm interested <laughs> to think, bro. What what did uh what context did did you in, listen enjoy this music under? Well, I ain't gonna cap. I ain't, I listened to it primarily. Like I went to it as quickly as I went to it for the show. Um, and so I'm listening to it while I'm doing some research and while I'm studying, just really just 
to get a feel for it and what it sounds like. Um, which in some, like, you know, sometimes I would, there's albums that I'm really looking forward to. I'll wait to make sure I'm in the car, wait till I'm outside on a good speaker doing something like that. This one I just kind of let run in the headphones. Um, and in some ways that might be a reflection of my expectations, not expecting to love it, not expecting it to be super for me. And I think with that lens, it was, you know, pretty enjoyable. Um, I also got to say that as somebody who is um, very like a Chicago, like I belong to Chicago, house music will always have a place in my heart. So the the house infusion in this album, um, along with the the world music infusion, along with uh, kind of the, yeah, the disco vibe that she brought to it, I'm more and more finding myself in spaces where that type of music that I might not really flip on for myself is feels really good to me in that space, right? And I'm and, and increasingly as cool with that as I would be with hip hop or R&B. So what I got to do yesterday um, was, you know, no no plug or whatever, but the Chicago Race Riots Bike Tour was fire. Uh, it was an amazing convening of people to come out and commemorate, um, understand this historical event in Chicago. And then chill, we brought the Herald's food truck through. We brought some vegan wraps through. You know, we had resources and tents and, and hot chips and cheese. And it was a great time with the community. And in that space, Beyonce, with a, you know, the DJ was spinning some of the um, the new album. And in that space, it hit, right? You, you I just don't want to jump over that real quick, Mazo. What was your involvement in the Chicago race riot protest? I just don't want to skip over that quick. Uh, I was part of the planning committee. I'm the director of operations for the Chicago race riots of 1919 commemoration project. Um, we're trying to get public art installed related to remind people that this instance of um, violence is deeply related to the roots of segregation that we have in the city of Chicago. And so every year we do a bike tour where we get like about 250, 300 people all together on bikes, biking to places that are related to the race riots, but also related to um, pillars of resilience and resistance and uh, defiance in the black community, like the Chicago Defender, So, which is a newspaper that's really dope. Um, so yeah, that's what we were doing. And in that space, right, where we were all coming together, uh, shout out to our producer. Yes, sir. The Chicago Race Riots. It's actually fire where he pulled up right now. You can go on SoundCloud, look up 1919 Race Riots. There's a audio collection where you can listen to the tour stop by stop. If you're in Chicago, you can do the ride by yourself and listen to the audio um, spoken by some of the folks from the, the Race Riot Commemoration Project. So that's fire. Shout out to our producer. But yeah, I say all that to say that in that in that space where people were coming together um, community, neighbors, basically a huge cookout afterwards, right after we did the tour, um, the Beyonce album was hitting for show. So I ain't mad at it. I ain't mad at it. I ain't going to run to it like I would listen more to Lemonade. I ain't going to run to it like I would listen more to um, B-Day or um, some of the older joints that like when they came out, I was like, man, I was all in. Um, but this one, I like you said, bro, I will hear this places out i will hear this at the department store uh i'm gonna hear this at the club and increasingly i ain't mad at it i didn't know you didn't like dancing music that's new to me that's news not what i said um i do like dance music um i'm big on the i'm a piano scene um i'm i'm i'm, I'm cool on it i do think that it is a situational thing um definitely when it comes to beyonce the beyonce that i enjoy a lot is the beyonce that's 
deeply drenched in R&B, that type of Beyonce is my favorite sound. That's why Lemonade for me is, is, is something that I consistently run back to. Daddy's Girl, um, I think is super, is super cool. Funny, interestingly enough, speaking to a lot of the women in my life um, that uh, varying in ages, it seems that the younger the, the younger the girl, the more they feel like how young guys feel about Jay-Z in the sense that like, yeah, it's contemporary and it's forward pushing um, and it establishes this person as a legend, but it's old folk music, which I thought was very, very interesting that it was seen that way. Um, uh, it did. It did sound to me that it did, it wanted it encaptured a contemporary sound with uh, songs like "Cozy," songs like "Church Girl," which the content the content of it was very um, in line with what hip hop female hip hop content is right now. Um, the thick, also you know, very sexually driven, female empowerment driven sexual liberation music, twerk music, all that type of, all that type of talk, which is dope, you know, um, there's no, you know, that, that's, that's hip hop, right? So I'll give it to that. Um, so there was a lot of that, a lot of that sound going in. The sounds that I did enjoy most of it was things like Cuff It. I thought Cuff It was cool. I thought Energy had a cool, a cool feature to it. Um, it, it, this particular form of dance music might not necessarily be my favorite, so to speak. My favorite Beyonce type of music is not this type of Beyonce, so to speak. Um, I'm, I hear that this is a three-part series, and I'm sure that there's layers and layers of intricacies when it comes to the writing and how Beyonce's writing uh, process is is also quite elaborate too. So, you know, I'm interested to see where where this goes to. It does sound like music that I'd enjoy most listening to, watching a woman that I enjoy, enjoy. There you go. Uh, I appreciate that. That's a very measured and balanced uh, take on the album. Can we get into the tea? Did you hear any of the tea? Nah, bro. What What? What? what there's, tea? There's, there's mad tea, bro. There's mad tea. Mm. So apparently, you know who Kellis is, right? The R&B singer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Apparently she was writing for the album and get her credit properly. You know what I'm saying? Her chef went off on Twitter. You know, it'd be like that. That's how we get information these days. Chefs serving it up, both still. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You did that? That didn't, that didn't reach your radar? Uh, I ain't gonna hold you, man. I, I, don't wanna, I, I didn't really go that deep into it that way. But what if you do know Beyonce's writing camp um, process is actually super interesting. Um, and it leans on very similar to Kanye's writing camp, actually, where you they she collects groups of the best writers, the best sounds, um, a very elaborate list of writers, and they come up with concepts, and they come up with she'll she'll lead the direction on the concept, and then they'll build the imagery around it, and then she'll take and piece things together, and it comes that way. So there is a reality where it you know it might have been overlooked. There is that there is that reality, and I still understand from an artist's perspective why that would be offensive. Um, you know, give give credit where, where where credit is due. But Miles, you know, you're 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 deep in in women's tea and and things of that nature. How how did you feel about that? I just feel like make sure all the artists get paid, man. I don't know if that's women's tea as much as it's business tea. Uh, you know, I think you know artists get really really big and they have these really great visions and 
you know, I'm I'm here for the small creators too, so make sure they don't get lost in the sauce. Uh, you know, we can love things that are big and beautiful and spectacle, but also appreciate, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, you got to make sure that everybody who contributes get paid. So if there's an issue there, whatever. Um, but I kind of found that out in the context of exploring the themes of the album and kind of what the internet was was pulling from it. When you say that she builds a concept around a theme and stuff like that, what what theme did you pull from from this joint? It it does seem that this is very commercially driven, is what I'll give it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they, it, it doesn't seem to me that it has a massive step forward or a very profound... Um, a very profound artistic intention behind it. I think it, it it shows more so how well she can craft music that is popular. It doesn't. It also doesn't seem to have the time stopping effect that Beyonce albums usually have. I don't care what you would. When Lemonade came out, bro, let me tell you something. If you were cheating on your girl, bro, that was a tough week for you. If if you were doing dirt, I think I might have lost the love over lemonade. I I, I think I might have lost the girlfriend over lemonade. I Baby. Well, we can't we can't cry over spilled lemonade. But I think yeah, I think when I look at this album, the theme that I got from it, um, especially looking at some of those production credits, uh, was that she was really trying to big up and lift up. Uh, artists that have been big on the on the LGBTQ scene, specifically in terms of disco, specifically in terms of like um, music that's played at drag shows, right? There's definitely an influence from the people that she featured to the people that she sampled to the people that she included on the album uh, that is paying homage, right, to that disco scene, um, to that scene that doesn't get a lot of light uh, in that queer scene. So I think that's I think that's actually pretty fire um and i and i appreciate her looking to folks that um i mean and and, t- and i take your point right because when you say commercial that kind of resonates with me too right we ain't gonna act like every store in the world well not every store in the world every store in the world in the united states threw up a gay flag in their window for the whole entire month of june and and then switched that mug out real smooth to fourth of july decorations right like we saw that we saw that happen. So I ain't gonna say that you know it's her coming out of the box and picking a group that nobody else is championing. But I will say that when Beyonce does it with intention, I and even when the album's not aimed at me, I tend to hear that people feel seen, and that is really important to me in music. So if the drag scene feels seen, if the queer scene feels seen, then I think that that's a win for show for this album. Um, and yeah, I mean, to me, with my social justice self, that that does up the the ante and the enjoyment and listening to it, which has probably doubled down on the fact that I did listen to it at a community event for the first time, um, where people were really like seeing other people enjoy it and and dance. Um, not all of it, of course, but like just pieces of it. But like, yeah, so it was it was. Uh, it was one another one that I'll put up in terms of that. Yeah, Beyonce is fire for show. She's an icon. She's a she's a legend. Um, and this is more music that I'll that I'll hear when I hear it and and remember that she the queen. Um, I'm gonna give this a personal three point five out of five, just in terms of me being honest and how much I'll return to his solo. Um, but I ain't mad at nobody that's five and four in it at all. Yeah, no, she feeds her her core audience with the you know alien superstar that's strutting music. And you talking to somebody that loves RuPaul, you know what I'm saying? You you talking to somebody that that really is um, that admires 
the drag scene. There's nothing. Listen, dude, I don't care what competition on TV you're talking about. There is nothing more impressive than what's happening on that RuPaul show, bro. It is mind blowing just how talented that is. And so when you hear how that music resonates in there, that's for its core audience. That That is a big part of her core audience. So I think Beyonce dropped one for, for her fans. This would be the equivalent of an underground mixtape for, <laughs> for, for her core audience, you know? And I think, uh, like you said, for the people that it's for, they're going to dig it. Uh, Break My Soul does that for that. I enjoyed Energy, like I said. Um, Virgo, Virgo Groove, uh, shout out Virgo Gang. Um, was also cool. I like the type of talk that she's on Basquiat, on uh, I'm That Girl, talking about Basquiat, talking about being American icons, talking about that new money, black money talk, that black billionaire talk, man. I'm all about that type of energy. So personally, like Miles said, 3.5 out of 5, uh, you know how we wrap this show up. Our producer gives us what he thinks his score is. Let's see what our what our guy is, is feeling on this one. 3 out of 5 out of 5. There you we'll have it. it. There you have we'll it. I don't know how our core audience is going to feel about Beyonce's album review being longer than the Lupe Fiasco review, but we'll see how the numbers come out. Hey, man, I don't think there's any doubt whether we love Lupe. Um, we was just making space and time for y'all to go listen to the album instead of listening to us. You know what I'm saying? But we appreciate y'all listening to us because we know. We know. Oh, yeah, we know, man. It's Sunday. You could be doing anything in the world, man. It's your day to chill, to relax, to kick back, and you are doing that with us. We appreciate that so much. Uh, this is a celebration of celebrating. It is a celebration of life. It is a celebration of how good it feels to be black. Don't it feel good, Sway? It's my favorite thing. Yes, sir. And we hope that it feels good to be you, wherever you at, whatever you do. Uh, but what you should do is eat something delicious and hug somebody you love and join us next week. Like, comment, subscribe. We needs that. But other than that, peace, water, we gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. But is we live, though? Is we, like, all the 